You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Ian, I know I messed you up. I skipped a little bit. And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is after he called all of them, you brood of vipers. He's in the Christmas spirit. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Pause. I'm jealous that John had this congregation where he can curse at them, call them snakes, tell them to give everything they have, and they say, hmm, I wonder if this is Jesus. Must have been nice, John, wherever you are. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he gets very positive again. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then this verse comes. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Who are these people that would think such a preacher is Jesus and call that good news? We need to pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this all the time, and I'm asking again. Please anoint me to make preaching easy. And please anoint this congregation to make hearing your word a delight to the soul that we all may taste and see that you are good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have been here. You may be seated. Overachieving Dan waited. This is my least favorite message I've ever had to write in my short little tenure of pastoring this church. And I didn't realize until today why I didn't enjoy this week. Because this message has disjointed my own personal hip. And I am now walking with a limp. Because this is essentially God tearing me up all week long about my life. And now I get to preach from that being torn up. Oh God, please don't clap. (laughs) This is not funny. You're dismissed. (laughs) We light the pink candle on the third Sunday of Advent because the pink candle is the candle that speaks of joy. And the reality is joy in this context is the joy that the poor should have because we're in the community. Everyone came to John saying, what shall we do? And everything John told them, if they do it, would bless the world around them. If you have two tunics, give one away. If you're a tax collector, don't collect more than you ought to. If you're a soldier, don't extort people, but protect them. If everyone does that, 
the community would be happy that those people are there. So today we light this pink candle, and this pink candle is the candle that reminds us in the church of the poor who are not here, that they should be rejoicing because we are in the community. So this was step one to me getting my butt kicked because I literally have not spoken to the neighbors that live on my street. So I don't know if they're happy that we're here or not. But they should know that we're here and they should be happy. It, I'm like, I feel like this is like a big confessional booth today. Okay? Like a huge, enormous, Protestant confessional booth where I confess and you guys hopefully let me know that I'm forgiven at some point. Maybe with a smile or a clap or a laugh or something. Yeah. <laughs> this is the best church ever to pastor. Next week, we're going to hear about John the Baptist when he, when he leaps in the womb. So we go back in time next week. This week, that baby that leapt is now a grown man, and he's fulfilling his ministry. And what, when John leapt in the womb of his mother, this teaching that he's giving is what that leap looks like when it's fully mature. We all get excited about the text where John leaps, but if the leap doesn't turn into a ministry, it doesn't matter. So this is what John leaping looks like. It's John saying, prepare ye in the wilderness the way of the Lord. And I want to show you, Ian, I, I just apologize now, I'm going to jump everywhere. All over the place for no rhyme or reason. And if it messes up, it's your fault. And if it goes well, it's mine. And that's just how we're going to do it. But look at these two possible ways that we could interpret Isaiah's text in the Bible. These are two possible ways. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now wait. You have to see where the quotes are. The first possible way it could be written, because it's written two different ways. The first way is, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now put the second possibility up. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Those quotes change everything. It's the voice of one crying in the wilderness or the voice of one crying. And what he says is, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I'm sure it's the second one. Because this text begins with it saying, and as the people were coming out to him, he was exhorting them saying. So they were leaving their homes and they were going out into the wilderness to hear the word of the Lord. To be prepared for the Messiah to come. We have had this assumption that God is here to deliver us from the wilderness. He delivers you from Egypt. He delivers you to the wilderness. He doesn't deliver us from the wilderness. He brings us there as part of our deliverance. Exciting, right? Isn't that great? I'm just saying what he told me to say. So if you don't like this, take it up with God. I'm sure he will love to have the conversation. He only he can deliver us from Egypt. The ten plagues. The Red Sea. Only God. Only God can bring salvation into somebody's life. Only God. There is not a work. There is not a thought. There is not a faith that I could have that could get God to do something. Only he can bring salvation. My faith accesses what he has done, for sure. 
But in the wilderness, my actions matter. Read the story. I'm giving you, Numbers chapter 14, I'm giving you 40 years in the wilderness because of what you did when you were spying out the promised land. They could have gotten through the wilderness faster. Our actions and our choices, they don't bring us salvation, but they determine what happens to us in the wilderness. So what is wilderness? Wilderness is any time in your life you're suspended in between a situation that could still go either way. Any part of your life that is still in the balance is a wilderness reality. So what's a small example of this? I'm hungry. Where should I go eat? I've determined I'm hungry, so I've taken one step towards food. But I don't know where I'm going yet. I'm in between. It's a wilderness. Those are the ones we like. But other ones are, who am I? I know the Bible says I'm someone, but I don't feel like that person at all. The Proverbs say I'm supposed to look blessed, but my life doesn't look like the Proverbs at all. You told me that my children were going to serve the Lord, but they're not serving the Lord. You told me that you were going to deliver me financially, but I'm still financially wrecked. Plug anything into that equation whenever you're in between something. You said you were going to heal this relationship, but the relationship is still going through a cycle of healing and brokenness, and it won't stop. That's wilderness. And it's in those places that God comes to wrestle with our will. It's where he brings you into the wilderness just because of his will. It is his will that we are saved. And so he brings us into the wilderness. He brings us out of slavery. And then he says, now we're going to have a conversation. Now I'm going to press on you. Now I'm going to stretch out the time between everything I've promised and all of its fulfillment. I'm going to stretch that time out because I'm going to be stretching you out with it. If you look in any translation of the Bible... After every day of creation, what does God say of the day? And it was, on the second day of creation, it says, and it was so. He doesn't call the second day of creation good. He says it is so. Because the second day of creation is when he stretches out the firmament. He stretches out the distance between heaven and earth. It separated the heavens above from the earth beneath. And that separation is not called good, but this is why day six is called very good. Because on day six, he creates man, who is the first image of the Messiah, who's going to come and save us from day two. So the good that was withheld in day two is given to day six, where it says it was very good. But some of us are in day two. We're in that stretched out place. And he will not let you leave it until your will meets his. And somehow, this is good news. Just know the Bible says it. So it's not my fault for saying it. Somehow this is good news because God will not leave you until you become the kind of person he's always destined for you to be. He won't let you off the hook. He will be relentless. It is so easy to clap for that in here, but I'm telling you, he will bring you down to your face and not let up. He loves us too much to let us get away. Listen, he forgives, but consequences are the way that he turns us into the image of Christ. 
This is why so many people meet him in prison, because his forgiveness isn't consequence free, but he still shows up. It's just that sometimes people in prison have so little to lose that they actually can find him now, and some of us are too rich, we can't. Way off the reservation right now, E, I'm sorry. And he says this to those who came out. Every church metric. Anthony and I talk about this all the time. These are the people who came out to the wilderness. And his first response is, you brood of vipers. Every, like read John C. Maxwell. He'll tell you, don't treat people who come out that way. Thank the people who come to church on Sunday. Don't call them snakes. Tell them thank you. Give them all a free gift. Look under your seats. It's a new car. Just kidding. Not even a matchbox car is under there. The people who come out, what does John say to them? They come out to be baptized by him. And he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I will tell one more funny story and then we're going to get very serious. But this almost happened for real. I'm not lying. I'm not making it up. I almost ran somebody over on 9D the other day. I'm turning off of Main Street. That's funny, says the insurance agent in the room. I'm making a left-hand turn onto 9D from Main Street down by the waterside. And for some reason, the light turns green at the same time that the walkway says go. So please, if you know somebody in Beacon, fix that. So everyone starts walking as I'm turning. And I see the people on my left, and I'm like, I'm going to get safely around them. But I didn't see the guy from the other side walking. So I get, like, I, well, first of all, as per insurance adjusting, I was driving at a safe enough speed to maintain control of my vehicle in the case of an emergency. <laughs> Hence, I didn't hit them. That's the proof that I was doing that. So I stopped short, and the guy, he acts like nothing bad almost ever happened to him, ever. He was like, whoa, whoa. And I rolled down the window, and I'm like, dude, I'm really sorry I didn't see you. He's like, what were you thinking? I'm really sorry I didn't see you. I don't, I don't know what else to say. You almost hit me. Okay, I should have. Can we back up and do this again? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We want to say sorry, and we want it to be over. And we say sorry, and it's not over. Because here's the reality. When we do something wrong, small or large to whatever extent, we injure somebody. And if we think for one second that we can just say sorry and our sin is all of a sudden thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, we are no longer thinking of the person we hurt. How can I be thankful to a God who throws my sin into the sea of forgetfulness if the marks of my sin are still festering on another person? Be the other person for a moment. I hurt you. I hurt your self-esteem. I say something to you in anger, and I hurt you. Three days later, you hear me up here preaching, I am so grateful that God has thrown my sin into the sea of forgetfulness. It is no more. See, it's funny because if we really believed that he forgot it, we wouldn't be thanking him for forgetting it because we wouldn't remember it. To, all right. And you're sitting there saying, my heart is still broken because of what you said. This is the tension of the wilderness. One day... Will he throw that sea? When he heals everybody, he will then throw our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. When healing comes. Because there should be no forgiveness if there's no justice. 
I'm telling you right now, here's the ugly side of the church. Women in the church have been physically abused by their husbands over the years. And the church has told them, just forgive him. Is there a truth in that? Of course there is. But that truth without justice will continue to do harm. God is coming, like John says, and his winnowing fork is in his hand. At the beginning, he uses the analogy of the axe is laid to the root of the tree. At the end, he says, I'm coming, and I'm going to throw everything that's not producing fruit into the fire. And here's the reality. God as judge is coming as much as God as Savior is coming, and we should be happy and terrified at the same time of this fact. Because I'm happy that everything that has been done wrong to me is going to be made right when he comes. But I'm a little bit nervous that everything I've done wrong to somebody else is going to be made right when he comes. I don't know how to preach this message. I really don't, other than just to say what's true. So this is one of those naked, like, I didn't come up with any fun way to, like, filter this. Like, it's just the truth. Whatever has been done wrong to you, if you've been victimized, he is going to make it right. And that's a good thing. But everyone you victimize is also going to be made right. That's terrifying. This is why we walk through Advent and Lent and Pentecost and ordinary time year after year. It's why we change colors on the cross because our heart is not ready for that fact yet. And we need to be discipled by the church to re-walk through these seasons so we can relearn constantly and over and over again what it means to be humble and excited at the same time. Excited because he's going to make things right, but humbled because part of what he has to make right is what I've done wrong. The best line in this text are the people when they say, fine, what then shall we do? I've pastored here long enough to know, and I, you have had friends and family long enough to know, that there are people who literally know everything there is to know about everything, and they know exactly what they've done wrong all the time. I know what I'm doing wrong. I'm going to make some changes. I know what you're saying. I already knew that. I know I need to repent of that, and I'm getting around to it. It's always the yeah, but person. They come with a problem, and you say, you know what, I think the problem may be this, and they're like, yeah, but, and then they say something else. That kind of self-trust will pave the way to hell in a heartbeat. No one knows what they have need to repent of. I cannot be comfortable enough to say to God, I know all the things that I've done wrong. My sin is too great for me to be able to even discern that. My discernment center is so broken, I probably can't even tell you all the things I've done wrong. So the phrase, what then shall we do, is one of the greatest Christian phrases we can ever say. I'm at a deficiency here, God. You're the one who knows. You tell me what to do. I'm not going to walk around acting like I know. Watch this very funny text. Hopefully I didn't mess this one up. It's Luke 22, verse 22 and 24. They're at the Last Supper. And it says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And watch this. All the disciples, it says, they began to question one another which one of them was going to do this. And I thought at first, that's really good. They had some self-awareness there. Like, it might be me. But look at what happens in the next verse. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. He says, I'm going, one of you is going to betray me. And at first I thought it was like, 
I think it might be me. I think it might be me. But I think what they were doing was, I think it might be you. Because that conversation turned into a conversation of which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus, at the end of his ministry, is like, I can't do this. I can't do this. We're, we've made it all the way here. It's, it's Thursday. Friday, it all goes down. And this is how far we've gotten with them. Fantastic. He was like, I cannot wait to ascend to the Father. Because holy smokes. We can laugh at ourselves, but listen, when you're by yourself and it's time to wrestle with your will, if we are not 100% open, I left the service, and remember these? I walked into my office while we were doing that last song, and I said, Lord, what? I don't even know why I'm here. Like, what did I come here to do? And it's either because the Spirit was leading me or I'm getting older, and I forgot. And I see the basket with these in it, and I take the first one, and I see number three. I'm outside the edges with too much self-thought. I thought, wow, that's fantastic, honesty. I'm always thinking about what has been done to me. I'm always thinking about, at best, God, how do I handle well? the sin that other people have inflicted on my life. That's a good thing. But if that conversation of self-thought doesn't go to what have I done that I don't even know about? Who have I hurt that it hasn't even registered on my radar that I'm capable of this? If we don't wrestle there, we will never wrestle our way into the image of God. What then shall we do? So what does he say? The crowds come to him. And he says, if you have two tunics, give to those who have none. And if you have food, you do likewise. And what does this mean? This means he wants us to see excess as opportunities for others, not possibilities for ourselves. Whenever we have extra... He wants us to see the extra we have as an opportunity for somebody else, not a possibility for me. And again, when it comes to the obvious things like money and clothes, we are so ready for that. Listen, Salem, you bought everybody there from Hedgewood clothes on Sunday. Half this room didn't empty out before every one of those 25 ornaments were taken. And all week long, people were coming with clothes for other people and putting them under that tree. It was very cool to watch you do it. And when it comes to things like that, we're good. But where else in my life do I have extra and I'm not thinking what can I do with this extra for somebody else? What if I have extra energy? Do I really say how can I give some of this energy to somebody else? Have I even thought about what that would mean? What if I have extra time? What if I have extra patience? What if God has blessed me with a mind that can learn extra things? Do I give some of that away? Or do I see how I can be an entrepreneur with it myself? What then shall we do? Tax collectors came. And he said, collect no more than you ought to. This is fun for me. I thought of a childhood game that I used to play when I, when I was writing this one out. 
This is Jesus bringing to our awareness the shoots and ladders of precedent. Raise your hand if you've played shoots and ladders. Raise your hand if when you were done you realized there is no point or strategy or anything beneficial to this stupid game. I'm spinning a wheel and I'm hoping I don't land on that big shoot. Do you have the, okay. So number 87 is the most annoying part of the game because, not because you almost won, but because the game was almost over. And now it has virtually almost started again. And I have looked like that person a thousand times in my life. And then the long ladder that takes you to 84, you're right near 87. It's not necessarily good. There's no rhyme or reason for this. But you know what? This right here shows us precedent. And here's why. Whenever we let a little something go, that isn't even measurable. We cut just the smallest corner. So much of our sin is not in what we did. It's in the precedent that it set. So it may not have had any negative effects, but what you just did was you just gave yourself allowance and said it was okay. And the more you do that, the closer to number 87 you get. Because eventually there will be a small decision and you will have set such a broken precedent over time that it will drop you way back to where you started. He says to the tax collectors, collect no more than you ought to. Why did he have to give them that command? Because in that time it was very hard for anybody to tell if they were collecting more than they ought to. So a little penny here, a little dollar there, when they add it all up could be a lot of money for them and no one would be able to measure whether or not They did anything wrong. Our issue, we should never define sin by did it have a negative effect. We should define it by am I setting a precedent for myself that is taking me farther from the kingdom of God? Is it dropping me from 87 down to hell without realizing it? Well, I'm not a tax collector. Any time in life where somebody owes you something, you're a tax collector. Raise your hand if somebody, if you've ever done anything wrong to anybody in your life. Raise your hand if you believe that Jesus says, when we say sorry, we're supposed to be forgiven. When I've done something wrong and I say I'm sorry, it is fair to expect that I would be forgiven by another Christian, yes? If I start to try to collect more than that, it's a shoot. If somebody owes me patience, and I try to collect more, it's a shoot. If somebody owes me love, and I try to define for them what that love looks like, it's a shoot. There are things that we owe each other because we're in community. But when we start exaggerating what is owed, we're setting a bad precedent. I want Sophia to grow up to obey us, but we can overcharge on that. I know because I've watched you guys parent. (laughs) So thank you for the inheritance. We're still going to mess it up. Soldiers came to him. And he says to them, do not extort money and live satisfied. He says to them, live satisfied without needing leverage to do so. 
Amen. Anytime we keep somebody under our foot because we have found leverage, any kind of leverage, we're living like a soldier that is unable to protect. How many here have a family you're called to protect? How many here have friends you're called to protect? How many here have a community that as the church we are called to protect? If we are living, leveraging our sin against each other, if we're living, holding each other accountable for things that we've said, if we're living the kind of lives that say, like, you know what, you've done so many things wrong to me, at the opportune time, I'm going to bring up what you've done. If we're living with that kind of leverage, we're not living content and we're unable to protect ourselves or anybody else. How does all of this tie together? This all happens in the wilderness. For what purpose? Because we're getting ready to see the king when he's born. And how does the king show up? He shows up in a manger, which is not how we want a king to show up. Because when our king shows up in a manger, and when it turns out that his other throne is a cross, we're sitting there saying, I don't know if I want to serve this king because I don't know if I want to be like a king that shows up in a pig trough and then goes to a cross, and this is how he reigns. So what's going to get us ready to see him? If we don't prepare our hearts like John is saying, to say, what then shall I do? We will be like either King Herod, who sends other people to go see Jesus, so he doesn't have to. Or we will be like Pontius Pilate at the end, who says, I'm washing my hands of this. You all have responsibility for him. I don't. We will always be either King Herod sending somebody else to have our... uh, We will send other people where we will have a vicarious relationship with God through them or we will wash our hands of it and make any deficiency in our relationship with him the product of somebody else's bad choice. My relationship with God is broken because of what somebody's done to me. We have to prepare our hearts to see him. We will never want him to be in the manger and we certainly won't want him to get to the cross if we're not repenting of our excess, our lack of awareness, and the fact that we can never be satisfied. Because here's the reality. He has us out in the wilderness, and it is in the wilderness, not the promised land, that the devil shows up. A few chapters later and a few weeks from now, the Spirit is going to land on Jesus. And the first thing the Spirit is going to do is the Spirit is going to send Jesus out into the wilderness. The first work of the Spirit in the New Testament is to bring somebody out into a wilderness. Who wants the Holy Spirit? The first thing he does is he says, let's go out to where nothing grows and where everything is uncertain. And why does Jesus go out there? Because we're out there wrestling with our will under the thumb of the devil. And he has to go out there, and it's in the wilderness that he defeats what we can't defeat. But it's in the wilderness where we will receive the grace to be able to repent well. If we are always trying to get to a better place, if we're always trying to get to the place where everything is resolved and everything makes sense and all my precious promises have been fulfilled, if we're always trying to get to that place, we will never take the time to allow Christ to defeat what tempts us and wins all the time. And then we will never want to see him in a manger. We will up here, but our soul will never connect to what it means that God is in a manger. And we will never see the mangers in our lives that we need to climb up into so that we could be so humble and so unassuming that somebody might want to hear what we have to say. 
Want to know why it's exciting when we talk about spiritual warfare in the Pentecostal church? I swear, there have in my whole life growing up in the Pentecostal church, all a preacher has to do is say, listen, we are under attack by the devil, and people get really excited. Yes! I knew it! We are! You know why it's exciting? Because we win. That's why that's exciting, because we know Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. But in order to beat him, we got to go out there and we defeat the devil by repenting. That's how we win. Not by getting more blessed, not by having a better service, but by saying, forgive me for what I've done and for what I've left undone. And then receiving that forgiveness. And in that transaction of repentance and forgiveness, the world will see the kingdom of heaven. They'll see Jesus more in your ability to say I was wrong than anything else. When you're locked up with somebody in your life and the last thing you want to do is let them win, when you can finally take that one extra step into the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? Tell me what I did. I'm not sure if I agree with you, but here's what I know. I don't trust myself enough to confidently say I didn't. So I'm sorry they will see the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you yourselves don't enter because you think you're so moral you don't need to repent. Saying, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is how we open the door to the kingdom of heaven. It's how we prepare the way for the Messiah in our own life. We can yell We can chest bump. We can high five. We can do all these things about how much victory Jesus has. But all we'll ever be doing is only celebrating the victory Jesus has and having none of it ourselves because we're not repenting. His victory lets me repent and stay alive. That's what his victory does. The last thing I'll say is this. So much of what I wrestle with is saying, God, where is the resolving point here? I didn't say anything too new just now. Preached about shoots and ladders a little bit. It's probably the best part of this whole thing. God is a mystery. And he's not a mystery because he can't be figured out. He's a mystery because his character is mystery. He is why mysteries exist. He's the begetter of mysteries because he is mystery itself, capital M, if you will. I don't go to him to try and solve him. I enter the mystery that is God so that I can be solved and he remain a mystery. His mystery when I approach it and I start swimming in it and I try to figure out this person Jesus, this person Holy Spirit, this person God the Father, and I try to figure him out and I spend my life combing through scripture, combing through books, having debates, having arguments, talking with people, praying with people, disagreeing with people, agreeing with people, all this stuff that we do. As we enter this mystery, we will never solve it, but all of a sudden we'll start to be solved ourselves. Go out into the wilderness Wrestle with the one who's already wrestled with the devil for you. 
There is spiritual warfare going on in this house. I'm not going to be shy to say it. I know it's weird to our culture to hear it, but if we believe in a good that is greater than the sum of its parts, God, then we have to believe in the evil that that God said he was willing to wrestle with himself. And so there is a force called evil. And it is acting on us all the time. And there is spiritual warfare. We are pressing in with these Eucharist services. God is moving. He's moving in this room. I did all I could to not start literally prophesying over the kids who are parents. For those of you who brought your kids, I'm so grateful that I was able to anoint them with oil. And ask that the power of God would rest upon them. And I'm saying that to you. I'm thanking the parents who brought them. And you're, I, I don't think I'm supposed to say this part, but maybe other people will hear that. Yes, it's past bedtime, but the presence of God is worth staying up late. I got a parent who understands that right here, and I know she does. Things are happening. This, I, have, I am feeling such good, healthy momentum with this church right now. Your worship is ridiculous. Bishop Quentin Moore stood here, and he said, when I stood up right here, and I got ready to preach. He said the supernatural family atmosphere that I felt in that moment stymied me, and I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to say. He said your church startled me with how hospitable it is. Caught me off guard with how hospitable you are. When good things happen, wrestling with evil happens. And our job is to not stomp the devil out. Our job is to, is to crush him by saying, when he accuses, you are really X, Y, and Z. When he accuses, here's how we beat his accusation. We say, you know what, Satan? You're right. Lord, forgive me. Now what are you going to say? Anybody see the movie Eight Mile with, with Eminem? Remember when he rapped about himself at the end and then tossed the other dude the microphone and said, what do you got to say? That's how we defeat Satan. I'm going to confess everything I've done so that you got nothing to say. Here you go, bro. Say everything you want. Already said it. Already forgiven. It's done. Go ahead and rap. Nice. That's how we beat him. When he accuses you, say, you're right. Amen. Lord, do you forgive me for that? Yes. Thank you. That's how you beat him. And then what do you do? You take that forgiveness and you go to the ones you've hurt. And after God forgives you, you ask for their forgiveness. And here's the thing, you won't be able to enter everything you've ever done and fix everyone you've caused. Here's what we have to do. Know that they exist and sit in the tension and pray that God would one day heal the wounds that we've caused, whether maybe he allows us to participate in that process or maybe he doesn't. Be aware of it. Pray for those we've hurt. Pray for those who have hurt us. And somehow that will prepare the way of the Lord in your heart for the Messiah. Let's stand to our feet. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.